I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 10 and just a quick reminder as you are turning there that this will be our last Sunday in the book of Psalms for now. Um, Next week we will begin in the book of Ecclesiastes. So I would encourage you to, if you can, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Probably take you, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes if you need to read it in sections. Go ahead and do so. At least get through the first chapter by next week. Um, that would be awesome if you can do that. So next week we'll, we will start probably a approximately a 14-week study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and you can keep me in prayer. It is a not a simple book. But I know that every time I approach a challenging passage of text, whether it be an entire book or just a passage of text, God um, always... Uh, certainly blesses me, and I pray that he blesses you. So today, we though, we come to Psalm chapter 10, and I am probably like most people who prefer stories that have resolutions. Whether it's a book or a movie or a television show, I am one who appreciates when good triumphs over evil at the end, Good is victorious. People live happily ever after. The wicked face do justice. I like a story like that. Amen. Well, then we have this psalm. And this psalm is a challenge. Because there is no resolution at the end. Or at best, the resolution is vague. Or the resolution might be future. The tyrant in the psalm does not meet a just end. And, and we're reading through it and we're seeing this tyrant and we're thinking, okay, well, he's going to get his. God is going to do something. Perhaps maybe he'll repent. That would be awesome too. Nope. So this psalm is a challenge. One of the great truths about the psalms and something that Um, we talk a lot about, when we talk about the Psalms, one of the things we often say about them is we like them because they express real life. They express every emotion and every experience of human life. And this Psalm will also include and express human emotion and human experience because it includes trusting God when it appears that he does not answer our prayers. Is that not part of our lives? Trusting God when it appears that he is silent. Trusting God when it appears that he is absent. Trusting God even when everything doesn't resolve itself perfectly or like we would expect it to, where it appears that justice is forgotten or at least delayed or where it appears that suffering doesn't seem to have any purpose. We will, it, is, it includes a trusting in God when it appears that God is absent. The psalm, in this psalm, the psalmist's trust in God is unwavering. And yet, resolution is not apparent. The psalmist is unwavering in his faith, but the resolution is not apparent 
Another thing that made this psalm difficult was it was very easy to come to a place of just saying, well then, when it appears that God is absent or when it appears that God is uh, not addressing our needs, then what we need to do is we need to pray more. We need to read the Bible more. We need to just trust God more. I don't want to denigrate those practices, but I'm going to assert that if they do not originate in a heart that treasures Christ above all, that those things will prove insufficient and perhaps burdensome. So I guess that's where I'm going to end up going, is where is our treasure? I think that's at the heart of this psalm. I'm going to get there. But I think that's at, so let me kind of give it away, that at the heart of this psalm is the treasuring of Christ. Where our heart is, there our treasure will be also. Behind the words of this psalm is where is your treasure? And what are you trusting? What is valuable to you? Because if Christ is not of greatest value, this world will be utterly and completely burdensome. So my goal this morning is to present Christ as our treasure. And our hearts will be with him even if or when he seems to be absent. So that, our, that Christ will be our greatest treasure. So even in those days or in those times or in those moments when he appears to be absent, even then, He will be our greatest treasure. I've outlined the text very simply with two broad categories. Verses 1 through 11, we have, I have entitled the tyrant's boast and verses 12 through 18, intercessory prayer. So we have the boast of the tyrant. This will be the the wicked person who is at the heart of this psalm. And then we will uh, take up the intercessory prayer of the psalmist. There are a couple of themes that um, we will approach today, big themes that I hope to uh, spend some time uh, talking a bit about. The first one is practical atheism. You don't need to understand what I mean by that. I'll explain it. The next is treasuring God. That is having God as our greatest treasure. And the third will be intercessory prayer. So, if you will, will you follow along with me as I read Psalm chapter 10. Listen to the inerrant word of the living God. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. 
His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that man who sits, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Our psalm begins with, Where are you, O God? In fact, I would say that this question is what frames the entire psalm. Where are you, God? Why do you not intervene? We know that you care for the oppressed. We know you care for the weak. We know that you care for the, for the vulnerable. And yet you hide yourself. Why? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist is not claiming that God is unable, but that God is unavailable. He is the absentee God. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why? It's troublesome times and you have hidden yourself. When you are needed most, you are absent. Why? This is not a question of why is there trouble or why is there evil, but why do you hide yourself at these times? When people need you the most, you are absent. Why? The psalmist acknowledges the reality of evil. We live in a fallen world. But why doesn't God do something? Perhaps this is the most perplexing and difficult question that the Christian must address. The psalmist isn't going to give us any philosophical answers. But this question, where are you, O God, when things are difficult? Why don't you step in and do something? Why do you remain absent? This is the question that the psalmist addresses. And this forms the very, um, that is the heart of this psalm. Not to be too gloomy, just a quick observation. The very fact that the psalmist cries out, Where are you, O God? certainly speaks of an underlying faith. But let's face it, we've all been in this place. We've all been in a place where we would say, Where are you, God? Why aren't you doing something? Look at my affliction. Look at these other people. Why aren't you stepping in? Why do they suffer the way they suffer? Why aren't you, O God, doing something? We've all been in that place. We've all had to wrestle with this, and perhaps we have cried out to the Lord, like the psalmist, why do you stand far away? 
Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Well, much of the psalm is dedicated to um, details about the wicked. I've described him as the tyrant in your notes. He is both vain and violent. He is arrogant and aggressive. He is proud and he pursues the weak. His vanity and violence are rooted in his understanding about God. As, as we go through, we'll see that his vanity, that is his pride, and his violence are rooted in his understanding of God. And because he does not understand God, he has a skewed view of himself. He lives as if there is no God. In verse 4 it says, he does not seek God. Verse 7, he curses God. Verse 11, God has, he says that God has forgotten. Verse 11 again, God does not see. And in verse 13, God will not hold him to account. This is his understanding of God. He doesn't seek him. He curses God. He says that God is forgetful, that God does not see, and God will never hold me to account. I've identified the tyrant as a practical atheist. And a practical atheist, very quickly, I will distinguish between the theoretical atheist. The theoretical atheist would be perhaps the individual who says, well, I don't believe in God. I believe that um, in, a, in, a, in, in a natural beginning of everything, that somehow at one point there, there was a big bang and then out of that chaos came order and out of nothing came everything and um, out of no information came an abundance of information. But that's what they believe. They would believe that in theory there is no God. That's not who we're talking about here. We're not talking about the theoretical atheist. We are talking about the practical atheist. What is the practical atheist? The practical atheist is the one who acknowledges that there is a God, but lives as if there is none. Did you get that? He acknowledges, yes, there is a God, but then he lives as though there is none. The practical atheist may be a church member. They sing songs and and hymns, and perhaps they are even leaders in the church, But outside the church, in everyday life, they live as though God had no part of their lives, had not transformed their heart at all. They may be, the practical atheist may be an upstanding citizen. The practical atheist may say the Pledge of Allegiance before a town council meeting and emphasize the words, under God. This is the person who says that, yeah, I believe in a God. They may even be a church member, but they live in utter rebellion against a holy God. We know people like this. They are our neighbors. They are our family members. They are our friends. They are uh, people all around us. They claim that they love God, but 
In their business, they are utterly corrupt. In their associations, they are vile. They are men and women who claim to be, to follow God, and yet they live as though God does not care one bit or does not observe a single thing that they do. Ultimately, the greatest treasure of the practical atheist is himself or herself. His focus is on increasing his value, not on glorifying God. And so, we are seeing here in our psalm, we will see two big categories or two big practices of the, of the tyrant, the practical atheist. He is both vain and he is violent. Let's look at the vanity of the practical atheist, of the tyrant of this psalm. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. He let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. He is, I'm getting ahead of myself, he pursues the poor. He forgets that the poor are the creation of God. Psalm 22.2 He believes in survival of the fittest. This is self-worship. He boasts of his desires. The wicked, verse 3, the wicked boasts of his desires of his soul. His cravings are a virtue. He is proud of his desires. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9. We read this. For the look on their faces bear witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. These are folks who proclaim their sin like Sodom. They boast in their sin. They revel in their rebellion against God Almighty. His desires are paramount. His desires rule his life. He curses and renounces the Lord. This, look at, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. He is not denying that there is a Lord. By his very actions and by his words, he curses and renounces God Almighty. How? By pursuing the poor. By boasting in his desires. By finding his own satisfaction of his desires the highest good. The question is, where is his treasure? And the treasure of this individual is in the fulfillment of his desires. We see not only um, these sinful desires, we see the pride of the tyrant. He has a love of self over a love for God. The pride of his face, verse 4, the pride of his face In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, speaking of God. In the pride of his face, he doesn't seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. A love of self, a love for self over a love for God. His pride deceives him. He claims that there is no God, but this only makes him a fool. You can see that in Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He claims to be wise, but his very words declare him a fool. 
He values self over any desire to seek God. There is a refusal to to humility. There is no one above him. He thinks that he is the pinnacle of creation. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are there is no God. I am the pinnacle of all things. He is satisfied. Verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. All of his ways prosper. God's judgment are of no value. They are, the psalmist said, they are out of his sight. His ways prosper at all times. Why do I need a God? I'm doing just fine. God hasn't struck me down. He must not be displeased with the way I'm conducting the affairs of my life. God must not care. Your judgments, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgment, God's are on high. They are out of his sight. God's judgments are not even within his realm of thought. And he sneers at those who oppose him. He, what uh, does it say? He puffs at them, at his foes. He sneers at them. Despite his inability to see God, God is not out of sight. He says his judgments are on high. The judgments of God are out of his sight. Let me affirm to you this day that Jesus is Lord whether a person acknowledges this or not. I don't want to be too critical, but oftentimes I I hear people say, They'll share a gospel message, and, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and they say, "Well, you you need to make Jesus Lord of your life." I don't I don't want to be hypercritical. I know the intent, but let me just clarify something. Jesus is already Lord of their lives. Jesus is Lord of all. There is nowhere where Jesus is not Lord. God is. King above all, whether a person... Jesus is Lord of our lives, whether we acknowledge that or not. Whether we humble ourselves before him and call upon his name and plead for his forgiveness, he is still Lord. Jesus is Lord even of those who reject him. See, God is not out of sight. This individual, this tyrant, says, yeah, God's judgments are out of my sight. I will sneer at those who oppose me. He is also confident. Look at this. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. I love this. He says in his heart, you may need to remember back to chapter 9, verse 1. We spent a little bit of time last week with, with this idea of 
the godly person, where David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. This tyrant, this vain individual claims, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. The righteous says, I will give thanks to God with all of my heart. The tyrant, the vain tyrant says, I shall not be moved. Church, out of the heart the mouth speaks. The tyrant in the psalm is not thankful for God's deliverance. He sees himself as unmovable. He sees himself as the rock. He sees himself as a secure shelter. He has not recalled God's past faithfulness. He believes that he is unmovable, that I am secure. He needs to go back and read Psalm chapter 1, where it says, The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. But he believes that he is a stronghold, not God. He believes that he is a rock and not God. He believes that he is secure and he is in need of no God to establish me. And God says, you are but chaff that the wind drives away. And from the wicked, from a wicked heart comes self-exalting speech. I will not meet adversity. I'm above adversity. I do my own thing. And I succeed wherever I go. And Paul, by the way, in verse Paul uses verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. It's interesting how Paul picks up this verse and puts it into his, his list describing the ultimate or the utter depravity of man in, in Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And so here Paul uses, takes from this psalm, and uses this verse to describe the utter and complete depravity of the unregenerate person. Cursing and deceit are found in his mouth. So a quick summary of the vanity or the vain of the vain person described in the psalm. We are provided a sketch of the one who does not treasure God. He treasures himself. He sees himself as utterly and completely sufficient. He may claim that there is God, a God, but God's ways are out of sight. God's thoughts are far from me. God doesn't really care what I am doing. There may be a God, but um, he is not actively involved. I do not live my life as though there is a God. I live my life to treasure myself. My greatest worth is me and not God Almighty. But the the tyrant in Psalm chapter 10 is not only vain, he is violent. And we see this beginning in verse 8. He sits in ambush in the villages, 
In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. He is a violent individual. He stalks his prey. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion. He stalks his prey, which are literally other people. The weak and the helpless are his prey. He stalks them. He, He waits for them. He lurks and he waits in ambush for them to come along. And then he takes advantage of them. Other people are a means for his gain, self-serving. Certainly reminded here in First Peter where we are reminded that Satan goes about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. This man is parallel. He emulates the work of Satan. He does not emulate the work of God. He preys on the helpless. He is a murderer of the innocent. The innocent and the helpless are deemed a hindrance to his advancement. He, sa- he thinks that their presence, the presence of the helpless, will prevent my fulfillment, whether it is his job or a scholarship or career or financial freedom. The helpless are in the way. We must eliminate them. They are of no value and eliminating them will only help are, are necessary if I am to get a better job. If I'm going to get that scholarship, they need to be out of the way. If my career is going to take off, I need the helpless out of the way. If I'm going to be financially free, I need to eliminate the helpless. They are simply in the way. I want you to note that the denial of deity leads to a denial of humanity. The denial of deity leads to a denial of humanity. Because he has denied who God is, he now denies the intrinsic value of God's human creation. They are of no value. They are simply in the way. I lurk and I watch and I wait for them. And I will eliminate them says again, he says in his heart, we saw this previously in verse 6, where in arrogance he speaks and here in violence he speaks. His heart is corrupt. It is vain and it is violent. And what does he say in his heart? He says in his heart, God has forgotten He says in his heart, God has hidden his face. God will never see. What I do, the violence that I inflict upon helpless creation, God will never see. God has forgotten. God has hidden his face. Self-exaltation has resulted in a skewed view of God. Let me assure you, church, God does not forget. 
treating God as man with his accompanying frailties. He has denied the, the, the truth about God. He has made God like man. He has brought God down to his level. He has made God his equal. Or perhaps he has exalted himself up to the place of God. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten that God is limited by the frailties of man. Just like men forget, God must forget also. God does not see because man can't see everything. And so he is treating God like man. He has brought God down from his exalted place and made him his equal. Or, as I said, perhaps he has exalted himself. But either way, he and God are on equal level. They are on equal ground. As I said, his self-exaltation has resulted in a skewed view of God. And perhaps this is the great sin of the practical atheist that he considers God his equal or considers himself God's equal. But God does not forget. God forgets nothing. Now some of you may be thinking, wait a second, doesn't the Bible say that God forgets our sin? Let me just address that real briefly. That simply the idea there is that God does not hold them against us or treat us as sinners. When it's talking about God forgetting our sins, God knows everything, but he does not hold our sins against us. God does not forget. This would mean that God, if God were to forget something, then he, well, I'm gonna, I won't get into the perfection of God. This tyrant, this violent tyrant, also says that God does not see. God does not remember and God does not see. This is the Hebrew word El Roi for God. That is the God who sees. And we see this most pronounced in Genesis chapter 16, verse, verses 7 through 13. You'll recall Hagar. She was the, um, the bondservant of Sarah and Abraham. And she became pregnant and had a son by Abraham and Sarah could not tolerate Hagar anymore and she was cast out. And so she and her son Ishmael are in the wilderness and they are getting ready. Basically she is just preparing herself and her son for death. And God shows up and God honors this rejected, dejected nobody. And he reminds Hagar, I am the God who sees. I see your affliction. I see what has happened to you. I know the sin that has been committed against you because I am El Ra'i. I am the God who sees. God does not forget and God sees even our mistreatment, even injustices inflicted against us because that is who he is. He is El Ra'i, the God who sees. And so we've seen 
this tyrant, he is both vain and he is violent. He declares that God doesn't see what's going on. God doesn't know what's happening. I am of greatest value. My needs and my desires, my advancement, my security is my greatest treasure. I am my greatest treasure. God is not. Then verses 12 through 18, we see a call to action. And we see this word that we see often in the Psalms, Arise, O Lord. Arise, do something. Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Lift, do something. This is now an intercessory prayer. And I found this, to me, this was very interesting. David, or the psalmist, is not pleading for his own benefit. He is pleading on behalf of others. David is not the afflicted person. The weak and the helpless are the afflicted. And David is now praying, Arise, O Lord. Do something about my friends and my neighbors and my brothers and my sisters. Protect those other people. He is, intercessory prayer is truly a laying down our life for another. He prays for the victims of the tyrant. Lord, don't let them be afflicted any longer. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Against we see the wicked. And he asks, why don't they believe? Why do they act as if God is not present? How can, how, why is it that they think that they can live without consequence? They do not believe that God will call them to account. The arrogant and the violent, or the vain and the violent, may live this life without facing the full consequences of their actions, but God is not mocked. He is the one of greatest value, and he will call men and women to account. In fact, it goes on and says, But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the evil of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you till you find none. Here in verse 14 and in verse 17. Verse 14, but you do see. And in verse 17, O Lord, you hear. God both hears and God sees. And so this is a prayer that the God who sees and hears will break the power of the tyrant. Lord, you see and you hear. Hold this person accountable. But here's the thing. We never see, by the time we get to the end of this psalm, we never see that actual action. When we get to the end of the psalm, we have no indication that God has held the wicked accountable. But we learn another great truth in verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The tyrant values himself as king, but the one who intercedes, in this case it's David, is valuing God as king. One of my favorite verses in the book of Revelation is found in in chapter 11, verse 15. It says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of, our, of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The Lord is king. Even when we do not experience God's deliverance, this is an unshakable fact. Folks, if you are enduring trial and it is not being resolved and you wonder, why, oh God, where are you? I want you to understand, first of all, the Lord sees and hears and the Lord is king. The tyrant is not. The tyrant may exalt himself as king. He may think he's king. He may have forces rallying around him. He may have media saying that, yeah, he's really king. To say anything else is disinformation. The Lord is king even when we do not experience his direct deliverance. The arrogant are not king. God sees and God hears and he strengthens the heart of the afflicted. So we get to the end of the psalm and we do not see any resolution. We see what God can do. We don't actually see him the psalmist saying that God actually did these things. He, he prays that the Lord would break the power of the wicked. He prays that God would do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. He prays that the man who is of the earth um, might strike terror no more. He pr- he's praying for those things. But at verse 18, there is no indication that God actually did any of that. This psalm appears to have no resolution. There is no divine victory. There is no crushing of the godless. Or there is no bringing of the godless to repentance and calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. There's none of that. If there is a resolution, if there is a resolution, it is found in verse 17, you will strengthen their hearts. You hear the desire of the, of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. If there is a resolution, if there is any hope for the afflicted in this psalm, it is there in verse 17. You will strengthen the hearts of the afflicted. Church, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 22, verse 31. It's a verse that, like the psalm, puzzles me. It is where Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says this, Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And I'm like, I don't know, I just put myself in Simon Peter's place. Lord, don't just pray for me, do something. Rebuke the devourer, keep him from doing these things. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you. I'm like, can't you like do a little bit more? I mean, your prayers are valuable. But maybe you could... Like, Stop him. Then he says this. When you've gone through all of this, Peter, 
after you've been sifted like wheat, go and strengthen your brothers. Peter is not getting out of this situation. Satan has sought to distress, perplex Peter. And Peter is going to go through this trial. The tyrant is going to take him through the trial. Jesus says, I have prayed for you. And you will overcome it. And when you do, then go and strengthen your brothers. God is making himself viewed as that which is most valuable. That he will be the greatest treasure of the afflicted. This is where we need to go. That Christ is our greatest treasure. He is of more value than seeing even justice being done. We may live in a world and a day where we do not see justice actually being done. But when Christ is of greatest value, when God is our greatest value, when he is our greatest treasure, our trust will continue to be in him. Our value, that which is valuable to us, is not some temporal thing. And this appears to be the underlying theme of the psalm. So church, where is your treasure? Is your treasure, is, is it in self or is it in God? The practical atheist reassures himself. He glorifies himself. The true theist, the one who loves God, treasures God and entrusts himself to God's perfect ways. There does not appear to be the cessation of affliction, but there does appear to be a strengthened heart. In the midst of this affliction, strengthen their hearts. Strengthen their hearts to value the Lord above all. Paul said this, the sufferings of the present age are momentary and light in view of the eternal weight of glory. Paul didn't say, I'm getting out of the affliction. Paul didn't say, God is delivering me out of the suffering. Paul is saying that my heart is such that even if I deal with these things, they're momentary and they're light. I have my value in that which is eternal. I have not been delivered from the tyrant, but I have gained a value of God that far surpasses any temporal affliction. Which then takes us to Matthew thirteen forty four. You know the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. That when the person finds it, he sells all that he has to gain that field. The kingdom of heaven is compared to a treasure in a field and that treasure is of supreme value. It is worth more than all of a man's earthly riches. Everything that the man possesses, all that he is, pales in comparison to the value of the treasure. And the treasure, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven probably includes a lot of a variety of of elements and aspects and things, but certainly part of the kingdom of heaven is the resurrection to eternal life where God rules and tyrants have been eliminated. This is the same life then that Jesus has called the rich young ruler to sell everything to gain. Remember the rich young ruler, he was religious. 
He valued what could be attained by his own position. He did not value the one who gave him all things. So here is the Lord of heaven standing in front of him, saying, sell all that you have and come and follow me. But his value was not on the king's glory. His value he placed on the things that he possessed. The one who gave him all of those things is standing in front of him, saying, come and follow me. And he says, "Mm, yeah, I think I'll keep my stuff. He's a practical atheist. Eternal life, my friends, is more about a person than a place. Oftentimes, people ask the question, do you think I will see my loved ones in heaven? Will my pets be in heaven? Will, um, what will heaven be like? Will it be, will I, will I see my, my friends and my family? I have a few thoughts on that. But for today, we need to remember that eternal life is more about a person than a place. In fact, the thing that makes heaven heaven is Christ. Heaven with all of your loved ones and pets without Christ is hell. The thing that makes heaven heaven is Christ, the one from whom all blessings flow. Philippians chapter 3, verses eight and verse 8 and verse 10, we read this. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything's a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth. Christ is of greater value, greater treasure than everything else I have. My reputation, my life, my, my body, everything else I have is of no value compared to the surpassing worth of Christ. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. Verse 10, Paul's prayer, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul has value placed he has, his treasure is in Christ. The treasure in the field, my friends, is the treasure in the field far surpasses any treasure we will obtain in this life. The tyrant sees the treasure and he assesses it incorrectly to his eternal detriment. To the tyrant, Christ is of less value than self. Self is of is of is of ultimate worth to the tyrant. So I'll conclude with this. Well, if God is to be our greatest treasure, if He is to be a, our greatest value, how does that happen? How, how how do we work that? The easy answer is well, um, pray more, read your Bible more. Serve others. Gather together um, regularly for corporate public worship. Ultimately, however, and I'm not going to 
to come against those things. I, I am all for corporate worship. I am all for private devotions. I am all for serving others. I am all for praying more. And I am all for reading our Bibles more. But ultimately, a changed heart, the, the heart that values God above all, is a divine act. God has given us various means. He's given us his word. And as we read his word, I believe our hearts become transformed and changed. As we pray, as we pray, our hearts are also knitted together with the heart of God. As we serve others, we are humbled and we take on the character of God. These are all valuable things. But ultimately, what we need but it's easy to substitute, well, I'll just, I'll pray more, read the Bible more, and go to church more, and then, then what? There are a lot of people who pray way more than I do, and read the Bible way more than I do, and maybe even go to church way more than I do, but who are practical atheists. How is it that my heart can be transformed to one that treasures God above all things, above my reputation, above my passions, above all of my loves and concerns. How? I said, God has given us means. It is good to read our Bible. It is good to pray. It is good to gather together. So here's, I'm going to draw an element out of this psalm and I'm going to ask that you and I, maybe for the month of October, would commit ourselves in our time of fasting, in our time of prayer, that we would commit ourselves to intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is a huge part of the psalm where David is praying for those who are afflicted. David is praying for those who are being um, stalked and ambushed. David is praying for the fatherless. David is praying for, for those who are the victims of the tyrant. And so for this month, let us pray and let us fast for others that Christ would be their greatest treasure. So church, I guess this is where I'm going. Let us pray for one another, not just for ourselves. It's easy to say, Lord, be my greatest treasure. For this month, I'd like us to pray that for others, Christ would be their greatest treasure. Pray for your friends. Pray for your family members. Pray for the people of the church. Pray for your neighbors. Pray that Christ would be their greatest treasure. So church, I would encourage you this month, gather with your family. Bring them together on a regular basis and say, let's pray for our friends at church. Be specific and say, Lord, I pray for the elders that Christ would be of greatest value to them. I pray for those who, who are musicians and sing and lead us in worship that Christ would be their greatest treasure and their greatest value. I intercede, I stand in on behalf of another person. On this issue, I am not going to just pray for my own needs. I am going to pray for the needs of others. Perhaps you can gather together with a prayer partner and pray for the needs of others that Christ would be of greatest value. You can begin with your family. Make sure you include this church and uh, those, who, uh, those you sit next to. 
that Christ would be of greatest value. Our Father, God, we give you praise and thanks.